The reading for today is from Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of a synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? So baby dedications are on March 17th. Anybody know what else that day is, March 17th? St. Patrick's Day. Any fellow Irish in the crowd? I know. People are always surprised when they hear that Switzer is actually an Irish name. It is. I'm Irish, so we'll move on now. (laughs) So we are in the midst of this series, Love Walked Among Us. This event that um, Ashley just read for us and didn't read the whole thing. I wanted there to be some tension. Um, This event also is recorded in Mark chapter 5 the end of Mark chapter 5. So there's two different places in the Gospels where it's recorded. Um, And at the beginning of this passage, man, I'm sounding a little tinny up here, right, Jesse? Yeah. Maybe bring it down. I don't know. I don't know anything about sound engineering, so I'm at his mercy. So he'll work on that while I'm still talking. So it begins by saying that Jesus had returned. So he was on the other side, the east side of the Sea of Galilee, prior to this reading that we just looked at. And, and he was engaged in what I call the great swine incident. If you know anything about it, he had gone across uh, the Sea of Galilee. He gets off and, and he's immediately uh, encountered by this, this man who is possessed by evil spirits, by demons. And the man comes to Jesus partly out of because the demons are coming to challenge Jesus, but also the man would really love to be healed. And Jesus commands this legion of demons to go into a herd of pigs, which they did. So he exercised, he heals this man. The pigs then freak out because they have these demons. They run down the bank into the lake and drown. So the herdsmen of the pigs were very unhappy with this healing. However, the man was very pleased. He was grateful that he had been healed. But the rest of the people in that area, in this, what's known as the Decapolis, the area of the Decapolis, 
they all gathered around and said to Jesus, you, you really need to just leave. That was a little bit too much for us. So he boards this boat, heads back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the area where Jesus did most of his ministry. So he's coming back, and once again, the minute he gets off the boat, uh, he is immediately uh, encountered by two people, one right after uh, the other. And he's in, these two people that come to confront Jesus both have incredible needs, and they are both desperate, but they're both very different people. And you need to understand that the beauty of this account, this passage today, these two people that Jesus encounters, is all about everybody in this room today, all of us today. There are points of application for all of us. So um, we're going to read it in three different parts. The, this first part is we're going to reread uh, where he's encountered by the first person, the ruler of the synagogue. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, those of you who have been walking through this series and understand the tension between Jesus and what we call the perps, the professional religious people, I hope you see the irony here, because this guy is a perp. He's the ruler of the synagogue, and he was likely trained as a Pharisee, and absent the desperation that he has for his daughter, he is not a fan of Jesus, and neither are any of his friends in his uh, religious, in his economic, and in his social circles. In any of those circles, probably not a fan of Jesus. And, and, and so he's got this crisis, and he's going to the last person that any of his friends, and even him for a while, would have thought to go to. I think it's interesting how crisis brings clarity about two things. Crisis brings clarity about what's really important, and it also brings desperation. It brings desperation. I have two daughters myself, and I will tell you that if they were in trouble, I would drop whatever I was doing, and I would drop all of my presuppositions, all of my biases, and all of my prejudices if I thought, felt like it could help my daughters. That's just true. So he's confronted by this first person, and he agrees to go. Now he gets confronted by the second person, this woman. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living on physicians, maybe some of you can identify with that, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, and, I, and there's a tinge of exasperation, I believe, in Peter's voice here. Uh, he, he said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and, and pressing in on you. Like, come on, move on, get over it, Jesus, Master. <laughs> and, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her daughter, it's a term of endearment, a term of familiarity, a term of intimacy there. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Uh, Luke, who writes this gospel, he loves juxtaposition. 
And, and so what I want to do right now is compare the ruler of the synagogue with this woman. So let's start with the ruler. The ruler has status. He's got status oozing out of his ears. The ruler also has wealth. He's a synagogue ruler. That means he's wealthy. There's a, there's a correlation there that we know about. He also has power. He has authority. He's seen as an authority. He has influence. And as a result, it's extraordinarily risky that he approached Jesus. But none of that matters right here because his daughter is dying, right? Suddenly, all of that status and none of that matters anymore because he is desperate. Now the woman, well, she's a woman. If you understand anything about first century Mediterranean culture, you understand that they're, at best, second-class citizens, second-class creatures. She has very low status. Actually, I would argue she has absolutely no status other than the fact that she's uh, excluded from all forms of community because of her condition. She's diseased. She's ceremonially unclean. She can't go into the synagogue or the temple to worship. Uh, she's broke. She's lonely. She's probably depressed, frustrated, and hopeless. Anybody who's had a chronic condition for 12 years would be depressed, frustrated, and hopeless. She's probably divorced and most certainly childless. And she's totally afraid to approach Jesus. So it was risky for the synagogue ruler to approach Jesus. She's totally afraid to approach Jesus, which we'll explain a little bit later. In other words, she's also desperate. So he's desperate, she's desperate, and you need to understand that whatever the status and the characteristics are of each of these people, none of that matters when you become desperate. They're both going to Jesus. Because of the corruption of sin in Genesis chapter 3, by the way, I know, when was the last time I preached and I didn't mention Genesis chapter 3? If, if you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, you don't understand anything that's going on. You got to understand and accept that there's a corruption that happens from original sin for everything that we're looking at in this world. The world is messed up. Yes, Genesis chapter 3. There's your answer. That's really simplistic. I know it is, but that's the truth, okay? But have you noticed how the corruption of sin in Genesis chapter 3, regardless of status, regardless of wealth, regardless of power, regardless of authority, regardless of influence, regardless of education, that corruption in Genesis chapter 3 ultimately at some point levels all playing fields. We are all in the same boat. It levels every playing field. In other words, we are all desperate. The problem is, is that most of us just don't realize. We are all, Jairus, the ruler, we are all this woman who has been bleeding. And because of their desperation, they both do something they never would have done otherwise. I've already mentioned it, but I want to hit it again. In their own way, they each came to Jesus and begged Jesus for his help. Even though both the low status of the woman and the high status of Jairus should have prevented it. The woman, doing what she did could have been imprisoned under their law, or even worse, for going up and touching the fringe of a holy man's garment without his permission. She could have been imprisoned for this, but she did it anyway. Jairus risked everything. He risked his status, his position, his wealth, and his influence, all of his friends, all of his social circles, his uh, economic circles, his, his vocational circles by going to Jesus. Everybody was going to shun him, but he did it anyway. 
Now, one of my one of my idols, one of my false gods, is order and related this goofy assumption and delusion that I have that I can keep my life beautifully ordered and under control. Anybody else have this as a false god? Okay. Okay. So uh, when I look at this passage, I tend to look at it through my eyes, and I feel what I think should be Jesus's frustration. Jairus comes and asks for help, and I say yes, and now I'm on a mission, focused on this mission. In the midst of that, someone else decides that what I'm doing needs to be interrupted. So now I'm frustrated because order has been disrupted, tension is mounting, friction is increased, Control of the situation has been lost. For those of us who have the false god of order or control, especially if we're Irish, we know that tension, friction, interruption, and loss of control are our enemies, right? We see none of that from Jesus here. He's perfectly fine stopping what he's doing and dealing with this. He's okay with it. He seems to know that there is often opportunity and joy in what many of us would see as a disruption. So Jesus shows us something really important. The, the, the title of this series is Love Walks Among Us, okay? Here's what he shows us. The movement of love has no script. You, you, you want to you test your patience? Try to work out a script for your love. You want to test your frustration? Work out a script for your love. And notice that Jesus doesn't leave this alone either. Isn't that odd that he doesn't leave it alone, even at the urging of Peter? Okay? He could have walked away, but instead he pursues the woman because love pursues. Caring involves listening and chasing. It's that saying, and I've said it before too. If they want to talk to me, they know where I am. They can reach out to me. Okay, that, that, that principle isn't in Jesus' playbook. Okay? Faith by the woman also calls for pursuit. She pursued him. And love desires relationship. Jesus wants a relationship with this woman. Furthermore, if Jesus doesn't go after the woman, she may, she may end up only ever regarding him as a, religious, as a superstitious artifact. She gets healed and walks away, doesn't have a true encounter with Jesus. She may just think, well, he was that superstitious artifact that I was finally looking for. Because this is probably all that she had practiced for the last 12 years. The Talmud, which is an ancient Hebrew commentary on the Mosaic Law, lists no fewer than 11 cures for this specific illness that this woman had, this constant chronic bleeding. Uh, many of them, the scholars guess she had tried, if not all 11 of them. And, and, and I'm going to read four of them. And I'm not reading them to be funny. You will laugh, but I'm not reading them to be funny because there's a point for us here. Here are four of the uh, remedies that she probably had tried. Take three pints of Persian onions, boil them in wine, give them to her to drink, and say, arise from the flow. Here's next one. If this doesn't cure her, set her in a place where two roads meet, have her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and ask someone to come up behind her, frighten her, and say, arise from the flux. Here's my favorite. 
carry a barley corn which has been taken from the droppings of a white female donkey for as long as the priest says. Here's the last one. Carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter. So think about that one. First of all, you've got to find an ostrich. <laughs> then you've got to get their eggs. Then you've got to burn them and collect the ashes and then put them in different fabric. Okay. Listen, here's what I want you to hear. None of us are immune to this. None of us. How many of you have gone on the internet to seek a remedy for something that you can't seem to get your doctor to fix? See, this is starting to hit home now, isn't it? Okay. When we are infirmed in a way that defies mainstream medical help, we seek any relief that's possible. We'll spend any amount of money. We'll listen to anybody. We'll try anything. So auto autoimmune issues, Lyme disease, chemical sensitivity syndrome, many kinds of cancer, lupus. This woman is not the only desperate woman or person in the world. She's not the only desperate person. All of us have tried just about anything. She was really hoping for a healing and then to be able to just slip away. Because even if she got healed, she knew that she, had, she was going to be violating protocol, decorum, and even the law. She, she was trying a very stealth way of getting healed. She wanted to remain hidden, but Jesus is different. Jesus pursues her to establish relationship, and in that relationship, then she could also understand he is Messiah, and he loves and forgives and saves and redeems and reconciles. He's not just a superstitious artifact. He's everything that she's been looking for. Uh, Tyler Johnson said this last week. I think it's really good. If we could quit pursuing fame and instead pursue humility and pursue each other, what might happen? You ever thought of that? See, Jesus wants relationship. He wants presence. And he does it without a type A script or a magical incantation or a superstitious protocol. So how about us? Is Jesus a superstitious artifact or is he in fact our Lord? And do we realize that one of the great gifts that Jesus gives to us is simply his presence? His presence. Something else. As I said, Jesus took time to pursue her. I'm, I would also imagine that this interruption was very inconvenient to Jairus. Uh, I think many of us would feel for Jairus because we assume that Jairus would really like Jesus to get moving. Jairus is like, listen to Peter. Let's go. Come on. Jairus is thinking, you know... He's thinking this. It's not recorded that he said it. So maybe he's thinking, he's thinking, I was here first. Okay, isn't this the express line for healing? I don't understand what's going on here. Okay, he probably didn't think that. But you get my idea. He's also thinking, my daughter is way more important than this older woman. She's had her life. Uh, and, and he's probably thinking, you know, here you go, Jesus. Look at it this way. Let's do some triage. My daughter is terminal. She's just chronic. You can come back later and she'll still be here. We need to get to my daughter. But we also forget, besides that tension, there's a deeper level of, of tension, I think, going on here. And, and this, this is tension that's tinged with all kinds of irony. Jairus is the synagogue ruler. This woman was known as a, quote, bleeder. So Jairus would have never let her into the synagogue because she was unclean. 
He may have known her in that regard. So now, the synagogue ruler has had to lower himself because of desperation to seek Jesus' help with his daughter, and his agenda is interrupted by the woman that he would never let in the synagogue, and Jesus stops to help her and is not mad that she touched him. That's pretty amazing. Furthermore, the religious paradigm they lived under was that if, if, the, if an unclean woman were to touch the garment uh, of anyone, that person would also become unclean. So under their religious paradigm, really what has happened here is Jesus has become unclean. But the Jesus love paradigm is that the unclean person was actually made clean by Jesus. Here you go. If you get nothing else out of today, here it is. The beauty of the gospel is that you and I cannot make Jesus dirty, while Jesus can only make us clean. That's the beauty of the gospel. So here's how this wraps up, starting in verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, why would they go from weeping to laughing so easily? Because these were paid mourners. This is part of their culture, was you would go and hire Uh, you'd go to the website, the mourning website, and you would send mourners out. And so they're there being paid to cry and weep and mourn. But then they hear this and they just start laughing. They they don't have any attachment to this little girl or this family. So now they're laughing. They think Jesus is, is crazy. But taking her by the hand, uh, and they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell, uh, to, to tell them no one what had happened. So Jairus' greatest fear comes true. While Jesus was puttering around with this woman, his daughter dies. And it's interesting, apparently all the people thought that Jesus had the power to miraculously heal, but he did not have the power to miraculously resurrect. They thought it was over at that point. So every time you and I think about the cross, we should remember that Jesus is not a magic man, but that he is God and he brings life to death. Jesus brings life to death. It's also interesting, the language that Jesus uses in verse 50, she will be well. That word translated well is the Greek word sozo, which literally means saved. She's going to be saved. When You and I talk about Jesus saving us. Christians talk about, have you been saved? That's the Greek word, sozo, saved, same word. Uh, Many people mock Christianity specifically for our seeming obsession with being saved. And I don't understand why that's so mock-worthy. Name one person who, when they are in an absolutely hopeless situation of crisis trouble, does not wish to be saved. Right? And our salvation is from the worst possible crisis that anyone's going to encounter. That's eternal separation from God. Probably not a pleasant place to be. And we also see here the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus didn't just enter the room and 
and, and call out some command, but rather he took the little girl by her hand. He's tender. He touched her. And also remember, the bleeding woman came up and touched Jesus. So there's a lot of touching going on here. So what's going on? Why bring, why bring this up? Well, the law that, again, the professional religious people profess to live by claims that if you're touched by someone who is bleeding, you are now impure and unclean until that evening, which means that you cannot under any circumstances go into the temple or synagogue for worship. And, and furthermore, if you touch a corpse, not just somebody who's bleeding, but a corpse, you are impure and unclean for a week. So no worship for you. No community for you. But for Jesus, genuine love doesn't worry about reputation. He doesn't care about all this because he knows that Salvation is in him. Now, we need to be really careful here. Uh, the demonstration of Jesus' love here is very powerful, but I've heard people unpack this and then pronounce that because of that, Jesus' love lets us do anything we want, so we don't need guidelines when it comes to love. And that's not a leap that Jesus ever makes. It's not that Jesus' love doesn't care about wisdom or guidelines or transformation, but rather Jesus' love changes the way we should think about and manifest our love. Our love is mostly about pleasure and receiving and what's best for us. And Jesus' love is about serving, sacrifice, and what's best for the other. There's a big difference there. And, and those of you who are married, you need to hear me. This applies to romantic love as well. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't really apply to my romantic situation because that really is about pleasure and receiving. No, this applies, I would say, even stronger in a romantic situation. It applies to every situation of love. And then I'm, I'm going to deal with this textual question because I know from experience that everybody wants to know, well, why, why did, not everybody necessarily, but a lot of people say, why did Jesus tell them not to say anything about it? Why wouldn't he want people to know about this? Well, the reason is because just like you and I, what we would really prefer is a savior who isn't really the type of savior that Jesus is. Jesus isn't the type of savior that most of us would prefer. And they had that problem as well. They wanted, in their context, they wanted a political and an economic savior. Jesus' salvation, however, is bigger, more comprehensive, and eternal. But I believe you and I are the same way, especially when I get into conversations with church-going, Bible-believing Christians and really, all they want to talk about is the economy and politics. <laughs> Political and economic salvation is what truly motivates us. It's what gets us excited. It's what we think will fulfill us. But what Jesus does is help us to see the world as it really is, helps us to identify evil and injustice, helps us to live in gospel-centered relationships, as Allison and Tyler were talking about earlier, and unites us for eternity with God in a restored creation the new Jerusalem. So, he doesn't want anybody to know because he knows that if they hear this story that he resurrected a young girl, people will try to appropriate his power for an agenda that he did not come for. Let's get his power and appropriate it to our agenda, which is political and economic salvation. I continue to be amazed at the many people who want to use the church for political and economic influence, but it's 
always toward their agenda with politics and economics. And I'm not, I'm not saying the gospel isn't political or economical. It is. The gospel has a lot to do with politics and economics. But that's not primarily what the gospel is. Politics, economics, those are consequences of the manifestation of gospel lives being lived out. But the gospel is first and foremost about the restoration of God's creation and the reconciliation of his people to him. Well, they didn't get that then. The disciples didn't even get it. They didn't get it until after the resurrection. And we struggle with understanding it now. And that's why Jesus asked them not to say anything. He was on a mission, and he didn't want that interrupted. And if you think about it, there's a scene a little bit later, right before Jesus is crucified. He's standing before Pilate, the governor, the governor that the Romans had appointed in that area. And at one point, he says to Pilate, you don't understand because my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate didn't get it because in Pilate's kingdom, in this world, women were second-class creatures at best, but Jesus treated women with honor and respect. In this world, the poor were considered unworthy sinners, but Jesus loved the poor and he stood up for their rights. In this world, sinners and such as prostitutes and tax collectors were outcasts and were shunned, but Jesus saw them as image bearers of God. In this world, those who were diseased and disabled were ostracized from life in the marketplace and in the public sphere and in the synagogues. Jesus was an, was an uncompromising and compassionate friend of the diseased and the disabled. The Romans, which is something that, the, that Pilate would have been really interested in, the Romans counted themselves as superior and unquestioned, but Jesus is actually king and he's a benevolent king at that. So, uh, this would be the basis for one of our seven core values at Redemption Church. And if you don't know what those seven core values are, we have bookmarks back there that help us to know what they are. We recite the first two every Sunday. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. There's five more core values, and here's one of them. No little, ple- no little people and no little places. It's one of our core values. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Our world is very different than his kingdom. So I think a a great example of that is, um, many of you know I'm I'm really deeply involved in prison ministry, and how I got involved was was, um, the desperation of one mother 20 years ago coming to me and asking me to uh, become a friend of her 19-year-old son as he's in prison down in Florence. And that relationship then grew to him introducing me to other prisoners. And I became uh, pen pals with them, started visiting them as well. Uh, two of them were, uh, are outstanding artists. And if you go around in, in our offices and, and in the green room and various places on this um, campus, you'll see a lot of their artwork and even some of the letters that they write with their artwork. Their letters are actually more interesting, I've found, um, than, than even the artwork. But very early on in this, I wrote one of these prisoners. He, he was um, in his seventh year of a 17-year um, uh, prison term. He's been out now for four years. And um, I asked him, I said, we're doing a series in Mark. 
would you, would you just paint a painting, whatever you think, whatever inspires you from the Gospel of Mark, would you paint a painting? And here's the painting right here, and you, you'll see it up on the screen too. Here's the actual framed uh, original uh, painting that he did. And he sent this letter with it, and I want to finish by reading this letter because I think it's filled with helpful truth for us. Uh, Dear Frank, well, I finally finished. I actually gave up two times and then, quote, finished five times. Finally, on the sixth time, I said, okay, I'm done. And even as I'm, I'm writing you, I'm thinking of ways that my mind sees and yet my hand couldn't accomplish. But I'll leave it as is and chalk it up to practice. When I first heard that you were in the book of Mark, only one verse came to mind. This is Luke 8.50. He says Mark 5.36. I'm sure you know the story. Jairus goes to Jesus because his daughter is sick and he is desperate. He knows that Jesus can heal, so he hopes for his child. Yet while they are on the way to his house, Jesus stops to deal with a woman who has touched him. I can hear what I'd be thinking at that moment if I were Jairus. Okay, this woman is old. She's had her life. My daughter is, well, she's mine. We need you now. Can you please hurry, Jesus? But God is not locked into our world of time. He can give all his attention to each of us for as long as we need and not ignore anyone else in doing so. So God is talking to this woman and while, I'm sorry, so Jesus is talking to this woman. All right, yeah, God is talking to this woman. And while he is, word comes to Jairus. It's too late. And so Jairus collapses as life goes into a blur. But Jesus' response is so cool. He doesn't say, dang, I'm, I'm sorry I took so long. Man, if you'd only been smart enough to come to me sooner, we could have saved her. Rather, Jesus stoops down and says with sincerity and compassion and maybe a hint of excitement, hey, don't listen to them. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Believe. In my last seven years in prison, I have, learned, I have leaned on that verse so heavily. Countless times I've had to listen to Jesus say, ignore that report, don't be afraid, just believe. All the guys in prison tell me that no one gets out, of er- gets out early, just believe. Statistics say that my kids will end up in trouble because dad is not at home, just believe. People say my wife won't be able to wait that long and it's wrong for me to even want her to. Don't be afraid, just believe. So when I painted this, I wanted the faceless man, Jairus, to represent any of us as we cling to Jesus in a time of need. Jesus' face is also dark and somewhat unclear. We all have seen that portrait of Jesus with his handsome face and soft hair and groomed beard. Isaiah 53 makes it clear, however, that the Messiah would not be handsome. God needed his message to be accepted on its own merit, not because a good-looking messenger pulled us in with his demeanor. So maybe Jesus had big ears or a bumpy nose or a wiry beard peppered with wood chips or sawdust. I don't know what he looked like, and no one does. And it doesn't really matter, except that that's why I left his features unclear. The courtyard is dark and void of people, not because it's night, But because if you've ever received news that is beyond all of your strength to bear, at that moment, there is nothing else around you. No voices, no faces, no structures, just you surrounded by a blur. And then in the middle is an area of light from a source we have never seen, yet we have all experienced. 
The one thing that is universal to all people at all times in all cultures is suffering. Every single person who has taken a breath has felt sorrow. But the sad part is that while we all know sorrow, we do not all know the man of sorrows, who for our sake experienced the worst the world could give so that when we walked our own road of tears, we could cling to him who knows our pain as he whispers to us, don't be afraid, just believe. I pray your series on Mark turns people on to the awesome truths of the Bible, and the next time the world around you goes dark, cling to the one who will turn your darkness to light, and don't be afraid. Bless you, Charlie. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for how you've recorded these items, these, these accounts in your word, how we can see that what Jesus teaches, he actually puts into action. And he does so with great intention, with a, with a purpose and a focus of mission, and, and with a joy and with a compassion that, frankly, all of us strive for. And God, that's our prayer, that we would have that, that joy and that compassion, that we would be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would know what it is to love like Jesus. God, help us with that. Help us to, as, as Charlie writes, to be turned on to your great truths. Help us to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.